please turn with me to the book of Esther. We'll be studying Esther this morning. Esther chapter 4 on page 504 of the Church Bible. Esther chapter 4, page 504 of the Church Bible. God's people, the Jews, are in exile because of their sin. God has removed them from his promised land, from Jerusalem, and he's taken them into the land of Persia, which is his great superpower of the day. And the king of Persia is known in the Bible as Ahasuerus, or to history as Xerxes. This is the same king, if you know a little of ancient history, he famously invaded Greece, and at the battle of, I think it's pronounced Thermopylae, uh, 300 Spartan soldiers held a narrow mountain pass against his vast, vast army. It's one of the most famous battles in history. It's been made into films in Hollywood, 300 Spartans holding out against King Xerxes' army. And this is who we read of in the book of Esther. King Xerxes has chosen Esther to be his new queen. Her uncle Mordecai, who is her guardian, is a civil servant, and he has offended the prime minister of Persia. Haman. And Haman, the Prime Minister, is determined to get revenge on Haman. And he's planning to exterminate not just Haman, but all the Jews in the Empire. And at the end of chapter 3, he sends out an edict to dis- that, that all the Jews are to be destroyed on a certain date. And we jump into the story at this point as the edict has gone out. We begin our reading at Esther chapter 4. And we'll be concentrating this morning on verses 12 to 14. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting Weeping and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of a sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatach, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hatak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. 
When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. We end our reading there. Esther chapter 4 and we'll spend some time considering verses 12 to 14 when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai he sent back this answer do not think that because you are in the king's house you alone of all the Jews will escape for if you remain silent at this time relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place but you and your father's family will perish and who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. What is a hobbit? A hobbit is a small, insignificant creature that lives in Middle Earth, about half the height of a man, and are the heroes of the Lord of the Rings story. In the Lord of the Rings story, one hobbit Frodo Baggins, small, insignificant, comes into possession of one of the most significant items in all of Middle-earth. Comes into possession of the One Ring of Power. The Dark Lord Sauron's One Ring of Power. The ring is powerful and it's deadly. Sauron, the Dark Lord, is growing in power and he only needs the ring to conquer all of Middle-earth and bring everyone into slavery and bondage to him. And this ring has fallen into the hands of a lowly, insignificant creature called a hobbit. And all the forces of evil are straining to find this ring. And it falls to Frodo to take the ring and go on a perilous journey, chased by all the powers of evil in the land, and destroy the ring deep in enemy territory. And as this responsibility is cast on Frodo, he cries out in desperation, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And the wise wizard Gandalf replies to him, So do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time given us. I wish it need not have happened in my time. Those are words we could very easily put in the mouth of their heroes in the book of Esther. Mordecai and Esther lived to see very dark times. They found themselves as major pieces on a massive chessboard. They found themselves under attack 
caught up in a struggle much bigger than themselves, faced with decisions about what to do. And they could easily have said, I wish it need not have happened in my time. Have you ever found yourself caught up in something too big for you? A situation that's out of your control. And you ask, why am I in this situation? How did it come to this? Is God really in control? I wish it need not have happened in my time. At times all of us find ourselves in the midst of difficult situations, in the midst of harsh circumstances of life, caught up in things that are too great for us. Yet, for Esther, God had a purpose and a plan. And for you and me, God has a purpose and a plan. I want to look at this passage under three headings. God's plan attacked, God's plan assured, and God's plan accomplished. First, God's plan attacked. God's plan attacked. Jump into this part of the book of Esther, and God's people are under attack. Haman, the prime minister, is in a rage. He's raging because the lowly Jew, a lowly civil servant, who is far beneath him, Mordecai, refuses to bow down to him. And Haman plans to show off his greatness. To show off his might, his power, his worthiness to be bowed down to. Plans to show it off, not just by killing Mordecai, but by exterminating all of Mordecai's people. Chapter 3, verse 13, we read, Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day. Haman's planning a massacre. Haman's planning a massacre. It's a far-reaching plan. Haman's plan reaches into all 127, 127 provinces of the Persian Empire. His plan reaches from India to Ethiopia. Haman's plan is to exterminate the Jews. He's planning a genocide. There are probably about 3 million Jews in the Persian Empire. He's planning a genocide on a similar scale to the Holocaust. It's a plan that reaches right into the royal palace of Persia itself. Because in the royal palace, a young Jew called Esther, who's described as being beautiful and lovely to look at, has just been selected as the new royal bride, the queen of the empire, a young Jew called Esther. The plan reaches right into the royal palace. And being queen won't save Esther. Mordecai says to Esther in verse 13, Don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Plan reaches right into the royal palace. And you see, Haman's not the first in history to plan to wipe out God's people. In fact, in one sense, this is the story of all of history. Because right at the very start, right after the first sin, in Genesis 3 verse 15, God says to Satan, I will put enmity or hatred between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head 
and you will strike his heel. God says there's going to be enmity. There's going to be hatred between Satan and mankind. Between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. Between the godly line and the wicked line. Enmity. And God promises that one of the woman's offspring will come and crush and defeat Satan. Right at the very start. And so Satan goes on the offensive immediately. And you read from Genesis 3 and the Genesis 4. And you read of Cain and Abel. And the wicked Cain kills the godly Abel. And it's Satan's attempt to destroy the offspring of the woman. And that's why we read in Exodus about Pharaoh trying to wipe out the Jews. Satan's attempt to wipe out the offspring of the woman. To stop the godly line. To stop the promised saviour coming into the world. That's why we read of the Amalekites, the Philistines, the Amorites. All these people attacking God's people. Trying to stop the godly line. Trying to stop the promise. And Haman is just the latest in a long line of Satan's attempts to wipe out God's people. To prevent this saviour coming into the world. And this battle, this conflict, it all climaxes at the cross. That's where it all comes together. Professor Leakey says in his book, The Victory of the Lamb, In the Old Testament, we stand on the perimeter of the battlefield, on the edge. We're conscious that a mighty struggle is underway. That's what we read in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we stand at the very centre of the conflict. The forces of righteousness and evil are arrayed against each other and the roar of battle is everywhere. This is the decisive hour of all time. The cross. Because Jesus is the promised offspring of the woman. And at the cross, Satan struck and hatred and enmity. But at the cross, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent that struck him. At the cross, Jesus routed Satan's forces. At the cross, he disarmed him. He made a spectacle of him. He smashed him. But let's not underestimate what's at stake in the book of Esther. What's at stake in verse 13. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. In one sense, all of history hangs in the balance. Because if, there's, if the Jews are crushed, then there's no serpent crusher. No Jews no Jesus. God's plan attacked. Christian friends, let's not be naive. God's plan is still being attacked. We still have a very real, very powerful, very dangerous enemy. Yes, he's defeated. Yes. He's doomed. He was crushed at the cross. But for a little while, he prowls around like a roaring lion. And he hates 
the people of God. And he hates to see us gathered like this on this morning. And he hates to see us serve God. And like a mortally wounded animal that's received a death blow, he thrashes around trying to maim and kill and destroy as many of God's people as he can before his own doom is sealed. He's still at work in the plans of the world at a global level. Perhaps his hand is behind the Eurozone crisis and all the debt of the European countries and all the difficulties. Perhaps his hand is behind our government's attempt to redefine marriage. Perhaps his hand is behind the changeover of power in North Korea. He's still at work in the global events. But it's not just at the big global level that Satan's at work and interested. It's right down in our lives as individuals. We experience Satan's opposition. So when we come across people who won't listen to the gospel, people who are blinded to the gospel, when we face temptations, doubt, guilt, fears, confusion, sickness, pride, slander, any possible means to harm Christians. Any possible means to, prov- to stop our witness and to hinder our usefulness. You still experience Satan's opposition today. Just like Esther, don't think that you will escape because of privileges or comforts. Because we live in a a so-called Christian country, a country where we have freedom and liberty, because you're well off and things are comfortable, don't think you will escape. God's plan attacked. Secondly, God's plan assured. God's plan assured. What Mordecai says next strikes you as a little odd in verse 14. He's pleading with Esther and he says, Do not think that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Mordecai is pleading, but he's not desperate. He's not desperate. He's certain that relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews. You see, Haman's plan is to crush the Jews. God's plan is to bless and prosper the Jews. God's plan is to save his people. God's plan is to crush the head of the serpent through his son Jesus. That plan can't be defeated. Can't be stopped. Can't be derailed. God will certainly save and rescue. And why is Mordecai so sure? How can he be so certain? Well, I think Mordecai's resting on all of God's promises. He knows Genesis 3.15. He knows that God has promised that one will come who will crush Satan. He knows that It was promised to Abraham by God that through Abraham the whole world would be blessed. He knows that it was promised to David that one of his descendants would reign forever. And he rests in the promises of God. Not just in the promises of God. But he looks back and he sees the past. And he sees God 
bringing relief and deliverance for his people and his confidence. He sees the exodus and God saving his people by Moses from Egypt. He sees all the victories that Moses won and the victories that the judges won and the victories the kings won. God delivering his people. God bringing relief to his people. And he rests in that. There's a lesson for you and me, I think, in that. If we're overwhelmed by the weight of the opposition against us, when we feel under attack, we need to open our Bibles and we need to read God's promises and see God's great acts in delivering his people. That's where our confidence comes from. Do you see in this God's great love for his people? He will bring relief and deliverance. Nothing can stop him. Nothing can prevent him from saving and rescuing his people. What father will stand by while he sees a ferocious lion attack and maul and tear at his beloved son or daughter? Any father will do anything possible to rescue them, no matter what the personal cost. So it is with our God. He gave his own son to rescue and deliver his people. Do you see God's power as well for us? The might of the Persian Empire couldn't stop him from delivering. The laws of the Medes and Persians, which couldn't be changed, couldn't stop him from rescuing. All the powers of darkness couldn't stop him from rescuing. Couldn't stop him from sending his son. 4,000 years, Satan tried to stop the birth of of the promised saviour. And we read at the start of the New Testament. Eliezer the father of Matan. Matan the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Joseph. The husband of Mary. Of whom Jesus was born. Who is called Christ. The serpent crusher. Came into the world. God's plan. Assured. Certain. Couldn't be overturned. Despite all Satan's efforts and all his power. If you're not a Christian here this morning, think long and hard about that. You're on the losing side. God's victory is inevitable. It's certain. It's assured. Do you really want to be on the losing side whenever the conqueror is offering terms of peace? But if you are a Christian this morning, take great comfort in this. God's plan is still assured. God's plan is to bring his people into glory. And nothing can stop that plan. God will bring his people to glory. You're not the captain of the ship that brings you into the harbour of heaven. The captain of that ship knows the way, has been there himself and never fails to reach his destination. You older folk, your arrival in heaven is not dependent on you. God's plan is assured. It's certain. I spoke for a few moments about the power of the enemy and his hand still at work in this world and in our lives. He is powerful. He's mighty. But we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to have fear and terror. 
Because our God is greater. He's more mighty. More powerful. He's stronger. He's the conqueror. No need to be feared of Satan. God's plan assured. Finally then, God's plan accomplished. God's plan accomplished. How will God do this? How will God bring relief and deliverance for his people? In the second part of verse 14, Mordecai says to Esther, And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. How will God rescue his people? He's placed Esther in a unique position. He's placed Esther somewhere where she can have access to the king, where she can plead before the king, where she can rescue her people. God's plan is accomplished through Esther. See, it's not an accident that Kish, the Benjamite, was carried away in exile to Persia and experienced all the terrors of being exiled. It's not an accident that his grandson Mordecai lives in the capital of the empire and works as a civil servant. It's not an accident that Mordecai's niece Esther is an orphan and that he looks after her. It's not an accident that she is a beautiful and lovely figure. It's not an accident that Queen Vashti refuses to be paraded at the banquet. It's not an accident that Xerxes' advisors say to him, get rid of Queen Vashti and have a selection contest for a new queen. It's not an accident that Esther is chosen for that selection, for that contest. It's not an accident that she finds favour in the eyes of the eunuchs in charge of it and that they advance her and give her privileges. It's not an accident that Esther wins favour in the eyes of everyone who sees her. It's not even an accident that Esther spends a night with the king seeking to please him. It's not an accident that she pleases him more than anyone else. It's not an accident that she's made queen. It's not an accident that Mordecai overhears two soldiers plotting to kill the king. It's not an accident that that's written down in the history books and forgotten. Who knows but that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. No accidents. God's plan accomplished through his people, through raising up Esther. God raised up his servant Esther. He placed her in a position to bring relief and deliverance. Placed her in a position to intercede for her people before the great king. Placed his servant Esther in a position where she could work out salvation for her people. God's plan accomplished. And it's all a picture for us. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus, the servant that God sent and raised up and placed in a position to bring relief and deliverance. The servant that God raised up to intercede for his people before the great king. The servant that God raised up to work out salvation for his people. The Lord Jesus Christ. God who was man, man who was God, the one uniquely positioned, uniquely qualified to be our saviour. God's plan accomplished. If you're not a Christian, not yet a Christian this morning, 
Jesus is the only one qualified to save you. The only one able to save you. The only one positioned to save you. The only name by which you can be saved. Cannot save yourself. Jesus is the only one able to do that. For those of us who are Christians, God's plan is still accomplished through his people today. That means you and I have a part to play in fulfilling his plans. There's a challenge in the life of Esther for us. Esther's position placed great responsibility on her. See, God's plans are certain, but we still have a part to play in those plans. Our part is to obey him and to honour him. In one sense, we're small fry in God's plans. In another sense, we're important, we're crucial to God's plans. And so he demands obedience and he demands faithfulness. You see, this is part of the mystery of God's providence, part of the mystery of how God deals in the world. God's plans are sure, but we have a role to play in fulfilling those plans. It depends on us. We have to do our duty. We have to take our opportunities. Because if we don't do that, it's disobedience. God demands obedience to his plans. And if we are disobedient to God's plans and his purposes, or if we're lazy about carrying out our responsibilities and our duties in God's plans, then that raises the question, are we even a Christian at all? God has given us responsibilities. God has given us a place in his plan. And we're to fulfill it by being obedient to his will. God has a purpose for you. That purpose or that responsibility that places on you, it might be hard. It might be difficult. Esther had to go in to the king uninvited. Punishment was death. Unless the king held out the golden scepter. At this point in the story, Esther doesn't know that. She hasn't been called to see the king for 30 days. And the king wasn't sleeping alone during those 30 days. Esther has to put herself at great risk here. It's not an easy thing that God asks of her. Some of us have hard duties. Maybe we need to speak to someone about their sin. Point out to them. Where they're disobeying. Maybe we need to speak to someone who's hard to the gospel. And will give us a tough time. Maybe we need to be reconciled to someone who's harmed us. Who's wronged us. Who's sinned against us. Men. As husbands and as fathers. There are hard duties. Discipline. Standing firm on issues that are essential. It's not easy. And all of our roles and responsibilities that each of us have, there are hard duties. But we're still called to obey. Even to the point of death. It's a challenge of Esther. But there's encouragement for us from Esther as well. There's encouragement for us because despite our sin and our unworthiness, God still uses us. I think it's likely that Esther had compromised herself. To get to the position she was in now. 
We read chapter 2 and we read that she spent the night with the king. And afterwards she was taken to a different part of the royal harem. It's not hard to read between the lines. And now she's married to an uncircumcised pagan king. I think it's likely that Esther had compromised herself to get to where she is now. But it doesn't disqualify her. She's not disqualified from God's plans. Not disqualified from serving him. And we're not disqualified despite our sin. Some of us have made bad decisions in life. And it's too late to go back on them. Some of us have maybe chosen a career motivated for the wrong reasons. Some of us have maybe married a non-Christian or entered into things that are inappropriate. Know this. Our failure doesn't thwart God's purposes. Our failure doesn't thwart God's purposes. We might suffer. We might be impoverished because of our sin. His purpose still stands. And he still gives us work to do. So as we close, what work has God placed you in a position for? Maybe some of you are high up in business or in government. Maybe it's for such a time as this that God has placed you in that position, that he's given you those promotions. Maybe there's something that he wants you to stand against or he wants you to carry forward. Maybe it's for such a time as this that you've come to that position. But it's not just for people in high up positions like Esther uh, who have worked to do in God's plans. All of us have opportunities to work in God's plans. And maybe it's for such a time as this that you've gone to that particular school. Maybe it's for such a time as this that life has taken that unexpected and unpleasant turn. Maybe it's for such a time as this that you've got that particular job. Maybe it's for such a time as teaching and training young ones in the ways of God that you've become a full-time mum and stepped back from a career. Maybe it's for such a time as encouraging others and ministering to others that you've, that you've remained single or childless. Maybe it's for such a time as evangelising needy sinners that you've been placed in a hostile workplace. Maybe it's for such a time as strengthening weak Christians that you've been given friends who try your patience. The great preacher of the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, says, You are a key to a lock which no other key will fit so well. You're a key to a lock which no other key will fit so well. So maybe you have a difficult duty ahead of you. Maybe you wish you had not lived to see such times. It's not for us to decide if we will live to see such times. All we have to decide is what to do with the time given us. All we have to decide is decide to obey our king. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Amen.